0: Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook, the same title read by yours. Truly, you can support the show by going to McClanahanacademy.com. McClanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. You get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. You get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. You also get great coupons. So you want to check that out. McClanahan Academy is a win win. You purchase one or 20 classes there, you get great content, and you keep this podcast free of charge. You can also click on the support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, get a book plate, an autograph of one of my books. Great way to uh, support the show there. Also, purchase books wherever books are sold online. My latest are Southern Scribblings and the Jeffersonian Tradition. You can also support the show by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, a great way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally, acting locally. Share the podcast around on social media. Do all you can to get people interested in this particular show. So, all that said, let's talk about the topic of the day. And we've got a really good week this week. So, a variety of things. Some listener-generated episodes. Some things that I think are just important to talk about. But I actually want to start this week with one of my favorite books of all time. And it's The American Democrat by James Fenimore Cooper. Now, you can get this book free of charge online. Liberty Fund has a nice hardback version of it. I think you can still get it in the hardback. I know I have it in the hardback. But they have a nice version of this book. It's a really interesting book. And of course, James Fenimore Cooper was much more well-known for his fictional work. And, of course, the leather-stocking tales are the core of that. But Cooper was uh, someone who was interested in politics, and he wrote this book, The American Democrat, in 1838. And it's a critique of American political society. Cooper says, of course, he is still an American Democrat. But he is suspicious of the leveling of American democracy. He is suspicious of the influence of party on American democracy. He doesn't really care for uh, the expansion of federal power. This is a really interesting book. Now, of course, Cooper and his family, if you're a baseball fan, Cooperstown, New York, is named after Cooper's family. Uh, A lot of these Western New Yorkers, and of course also into uh, parts of New England and Pennsylvania, were uh, very much against the centralizing t- uh, tendencies of the Whigs or the, the Federalists or also the Republicans. When you go forward into the 1860s even and you start looking at northern opposition to the war, you find that a lot of there was a lot of Democrats in these particular enclaves in the North. And you had literary figures that also were against the war people like Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, for example. Herman Melville, these people were not in line with the boilerplate uh, slogans of the Republican Party, and they saw the war as dangerous and destructive to the American political order. Now, it's often been pointed out they were Democrats, and they were. But you add the Democrat Party really was the national party in the United States. You had Democrats in the North, Democrats in the South. You really didn't have many Republicans. Anywhere outside the North, I mean, the Republican response to that would be, well, we would have had them down there if we were on the ballot, but we weren't on the ballot. This might be true, but the fact, that, the mere fact they weren't on the ballot shows that there probably weren't many Republicans at all in these southern states. So that means that the Republican Party was purely a sectional party. And a lot of people could see this coming. What Cooper could see coming was the use of the word equality in a dangerous way. Now, this is something I've talked about at Chronicles. This is something Michael Anton and I butted heads over. And, of course, other people have gotten involved in that. But, and it's not just us. I mean, going back to uh, Harry Jaffa and Emmy Bradford, this particular debate as to what is equality, what is conservative when it comes to equality, these are important arguments And, of course, important philosophical points to make. I mean, the issue there is the core of what it means to be a conservative. If equality is conservative, then there isn't really anything conservative in America anymore. Because that means that the left, the reformists, have won. And you see, the Republican Party wasn't a conservative party in any way. Now, you could say that there were Republicans who used to be Democrats who simply didn't want to have the extension of slavery. This is something they were concerned about. And you did have that, right? So they were not as in lockstep with the Republicans on other things. And, of course, this is where people try to split hairs. Well, you've got the radical Republicans, which are the real Republicans, and you have the Democrats who became Republicans. They're not real Republicans or something else. And you do look at uh, various arguments that you know Lincoln Uh, was trying at one point, he would have been trying if he had survived 1865, he would have tried to unite some of the conservative elements of the United States, the old Whigs, uh, maybe some of these constitutional unionists, some of these people into a new party and he would have have splintered off the radical Republicans and let them be the Republican Party. That would have been the left-wing faction. He would have created kind of a centrist party that would have been much more in line with what the majority of America was. And Lincoln's Reconstruction plan was not aggressive, right? I mean, it wasn't the 10% plan, the idea of let them up easy or, uh, you know, with malice toward none. this uh, This was not an aggressive Reconstruction plan. The Republican Party had an aggressive Reconstruction plan. Andrew Johnson didn't have an aggressive Reconstruction plan. And the majority of Americans didn't want an aggressive Reconstruction plan. The aggressive part was the war and it was over. Right? So Lincoln and others thought, well, the war is over. We're not going We're not going to continue to do this. Let's just let them back in the Union the way it was before. This is where I think there's a lot of credence to the idea that Lincoln was willing to postpone the 13th Amendment until 1890, if necessary, to get the South to surrender in January of 1865 to stop the war. Look, we'll put this off. You just come back in the Union. It also shows out that the South was more dedicated to independence than anything else because it was all about slavery, well, they could see in 1865 uh, that was, you know, something that I mean, it was going to be pretty much over. Even in the Confederacy, they were having major debates about the future of slavery, arming slaves, gradual emancipation. The Kenner Mission, where Davis was saying, "Look, if you'll just recognize us, France, Great Britain, we'll get rid of slavery, and uh, that'll be that." That's going to play into another article I'm going to talk about this week. Something that's gained a lot of attention in libertarian circles. So I'll talk about that. But uh, this idea of what is equality is really the core of the nature of American conservatism. If we're going to say that equality is conservative, then there is no American conservatism. And it also depends on the type of equality. Is it capital E? Is it lowercase e? What did Jefferson mean by equality? And that's why I wanted to read this section from James Fenimore Cooper, because it's it is beautiful in how it goes in to define these things. So this is a chapter entitled On Equality. So he says, Equality in a social sense may be divided into that of condition and that of rights. Equality of condition is incompatible with civilization and is found only to exist in those communities that are but slightly removed from the savage state. In practice, it can only mean a common misery. Now, Think about what he just said there. That is a major attack on the Marxist position. Equity, right? This is the the new catchphrase on the left. Equity. It's It's no longer equality, it's equity, which means equality of condition. And Cooper is saying if we do that, it's incompatible with civilization. It's only in those communities that are... Removed from the savage state, and look at what's happening in America. We are losing civilization little by little, and what's happening is the savage state is coming back. When you start talking about equity, you have to go to the lowest common denominator, because you can't take somebody or something that is that is not as uh, intelligent. You, you can't take you can't take a rocket scientist, for example, who is very intelligent and take somebody who uh, doesn't have that kind of intelligence and make them equal. It's impossible. But that's essentially what equity wants to do. It's saying, well, we need to make the playing field the same for both of those people. Well, that's impossible. Now, uh, Cooper's not talking about anything here but just natural ability. So we're just going to say natural ability. right? That's, that's what we're going to go with. And we all know that natural ability... We see natural ability and differences in natural ability every single day, and people recognize this on a regular basis. We celebrate in athletics, for example. You know, this week, Super Bowl week, we got the Super Bowl coming up, and um, so we see that there are professional athletes that are bigger, stronger, faster, better in athletics than than the people watching the game. It's why most people watch the game and don't play in the game, because those people are just. Bigger, stronger, faster, or better at throwing a ball or catching a ball, running a ball, whatever it is, than somebody else. So we celebrate that. Or whether it's baseball or basketball or soccer or whatever your sport is. I mean, we've got the Olympics going on, figure skating, uh, you know, bobsledding. Take your pick. Skiing. These are people that are better at these things than other people because of their natural ability. We tend not to want to do that with intelligence because when you start getting there now people get very upset about that well you're saying I'm not very smart you see people are willing to accept differences when it comes to physicality they're willing to accept I'm not as big I'm not as strong I'm not I can't do these things because they can see the limits right if you can't throw a baseball 95 miles an hour you know you're not as good as that guy at throwing a baseball so you're not going to play major league baseball but if I don't do well on a test, and this guy does well on a test, well, there's advantages there that he had that I didn't have because I'm just as smart as that guy. Well, maybe you're really not. But what you're getting with is equity, and so that's where you get into this whole situation of education, everything else, where we got of equity. Cooper's saying that's barbarism. You can't do that. You're actually destroying civilization, destroying society, but this is exactly where we're going in modern America, and this is exactly what conservatives, they don't, they don't push equity, but once you open the Pandora's box of equality, then it naturally goes to equity. You can't stop it. Okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get to there because people are going to run with this. Now, Cooper says, Equality of rights is a peculiar feature of democracies. These rights are properly divided into civil and political, though even these definitions are not to be taken as absolute or as literally exact. So he's saying, now, equality of rights. Now, what do we get into this? Now, here's where we can start talking about equality in a different way, right? Equality of the condition, you can't do it. But that's equity, right? Now, equality of rights is something else. Now, is there political and civil? Now, how do we, how do we differentiate this? Under the monarchies of the old world, there exist privileged classes, possessive exclusive rights. For a long period, the nobles were exempted from taxes and many other charges advantages that are still enjoyed by them in certain countries. In England, even the nobles are entitled to hereditary advantages that are denied to those who are of inferior birth. All these distinctions are done away with in principle in countries where there exists a professed equality of rights, though there is probably no community that does not make some distinctions between the political privileges of men. If this be true, there is strictly no equality of political rights anywhere, although there may be and is a nearer approach to equality of civil rights. So he's saying, look, even in democracies, even in places that have gotten rid of aristocracy, we still have limitations on political rights. We still do in the United States. You can't vote unless you're 18. Well, why not? I mean, But this, this is the madness of the left. They're saying, well, maybe we should let 12-year-olds vote. We make distinctions on people not being able to do things because that's what you do. Right. Well, maybe these people shouldn't vote because they're not of age, or they don't have a stake. In, they don't have a stake in society. Whatever it is, we've always made differentiations on who should vote and who shouldn't vote. Now we can debate what those differentiations should be, what those restrictions should be. Should they be based on this, this, or this? But they've always done this. So he's saying, look, political rights are going to be restricted. He says, by political rights, we understand the suffrage, eligibility to office, and a condition of things that admits of no distinction between men unless on principles that are common to all. Thus, though a man is not qualified to vote until he's reached the age of 21, the regulation does not affect political equality, since all are equally subjected to the rule and all become electors on attaining the same age. So, as long as you have a situation in his mind that you say, okay, everyone can't vote till they're 21, but everyone's equal in that. Or you can't assume office, you can't become a senator until you're 35. Everyone's equal in that. So that means there is a political a type of political equality there. But we do make restrictions. Now his argument is that's not, once you make those restrictions, that's not political equality. Now, then he gets into civil rights. With an equality of civil rights, all men are equal before the law, all classes of the community being liable equally to taxation, military service jury duties, and to the other impositions attendant on civilization, and no one being exempted from its control, except on general rules, which are dependent on the, of the on the good of all, instead of the exemptions belonging to the immunities of individuals, estates, or families. An equality of civil rights may be briefly defined to be an absence of privileges. Now, absence of privileges. Could we say, in American society, that we don't have privileges for certain groups. This is the argument against things like affirmative action. Now, the left would say that that, America has been structured to give privileges to white American society for years, right? Since the beginning, it's been founded on white supremacy. But when you start looking at the way that we've responded to this, and this is where uh, the attack on affirmative action comes. That's setting up a, a section of privileges. And we know that affirmative action is going to go before the, the Supreme Court. Uh, at least that's the, that's the plan. It's going to go before the Supreme Court. And they're going to have to, to decide on this. Um, is, there, is, is affirmative action a set of privileges? Is that really social equality? Is that civil rights? Because if you're saying these people have special privileges and these people don't, now you've just removed equality. There's no, there's no civil rights there. You're saying one group has privileges the other group does not have. And it's based on whatever parameters we want to base them on. And this is legal. This is codified. It's not just, well, I prefer this group or that group. No, this is you can't do it. Now, we know this has happened on the flip side. And I remember years ago, somebody said, well, when we do this, when we have these type of privileges for 300 years or 400 years, then we can start talking about uh, making it making getting rid of these things again so in other words people have to be punished for hundreds of years to ensure that this all levels out it's it's punitive it's retributive it's not really in the name of anything else it's retributive people are being punished it's almost a blood uh corruption of blood people are being punished for something that happened 200 years ago they had nothing to do with in both ways, or they're being or they're being promoted for something to happen that didn't they had nothing to do with either. They're family members, but they had nothing to do with. So absence of privileges. Can we say in American society there are no privileges? We know that the political class has privileges. So is there civil rights there? Is there early equality there? We know we've seen it. You know, there's just an image of Stacy Abrams sitting in a school with a whole bunch of kids masked up and she doesn't have a mask on. But well, why does she not have to wear a mask if she's in the school? Why? If I mean, that is a privilege. This comes back to the Yankees, right? The, the, in, in Puritan society, as you went up on the social ladder and as you went up in, in importance of the community, you had essentially what the Catholic Church, I said this before, would be called dispensations. You had a release from duty from those same things that everyone else was subjected to because of your status. Well, this is what we see. This is what the political class thinks. Well, I'm I'm here, so I don't have to do these things. It's a certain type of aristocracy, nobility. The distinction between the equality of civil and political rights is material, one implying mere equality before the administration of the law, the other equality and the power to frame it. An equality of civil rights is never absolute. We are to understand by the term such an equality only as is compatible with general justice and the relations between the different members of families. Thus, women nowhere possess precisely the same rights as men, or men the same rights as women. The wife usually can neither sue nor be sued, while the husband, except in particular cases, is made liable to all legal claims on account of the wife. Minors are deprived of many of their civil rights, or it would be better to say do not attain them, until they reach a period of life that has been arbitrarily fixed, and when and which varies in different countries according to their several policies. So he's saying, look, I mean, there are always differences in this. We can never have a pure, equal, purely equal society. There will always be differences. Now, this is where this push for equity is loaded, because essentially, that's the, the idea is we're going to dupe people into think we're going to get equity. Everyone's going to be the same, but it's never going to be the same. It never will be the same. And he's pointing this out. You can never have it. He says, Neither is equality of political rights ever absolute. And those countries where the suffrage is said to be universal, exemptions exceptions exist, excuse me, that arise from the necessity of things or from the controlling policy which can never be safely lost sight of the management of human affairs. The interests of women, being thought to be so identified with those of their male relatives as to become in great, inse- in great degree inseparable, females are almost generally excluded from the possession of political rights. There can be no doubt that society is greatly the gainer by thus excluding one half of its members, and th- and the half that is best adapted to give a tone to its domestic happiness from the strife of parties and the fierce struggles of political controversies. So, I mean, gosh, that would just that drives the, the, the modern left crazy. Fenimore Cooper is saying, well, it's it's good that women can't vote because that that civilizes people. They're not going to get down in the gutter with everyone else. This is always the argument against women's suffrage, that if you, if you exclude women from voting, they won't get in the gutter, but they're going to restrain men. They're going to be in the back end restraining men. They're going to be softening society from behind the scenes. And because of wives and families, of course, he's writing this in 1838 when Generally, society uh, was much more interested in marriage than it is today. But part of that might be because of all these things happening in society. But uh, women were going to soften the the interests of their husbands and make them to where they would not be as interested in doing some of these bad things. Right? Men are also excluded from political rights previously to having attained the age prescribed by the law. Paupers, those who have no fixed abodes and aliens in law though their lives may have been principally passed in the country, are also excluded from the enjoyment of political rights everywhere. Thus, birthright is almost universally made a source of advantage. These exemptions, however, do not materially affect the principle of political equality, since the rules are general and have been made solely with a reference to the good of society, or to render the laws less liable to abuses in practice. Now, think of what he just said there. Look, limiting... Democracy is not a bad thing because it's good for society and it makes abuses less likely. This is the big debate about expanding the vote, expanding the suffrage, uh, letting aliens vote. Uh, What age do we restrict voting? I mean, this is a huge issue today. Here he's talking about it in 1838. We know, for example, in Virginia about this exact same time, there was a major debate as to expanding the suffrage in Virginia. So we know this is a big deal. And uh, it's not something new that, we, that we're talking about. How should we, Who should vote, who shouldn't vote, and what does that mean? Let me read that last sentence again. These exceptions, however, do not very materially affect the principle of political equality, since the rules are general and have been made solely with a reference to the good of society, or to render the laws less liable to abuses in practice, so just because you prohibit certain people from voting or you say that you can't vote to, i mean and that could be age, right? We prohibit people under 18 from voting. That's deemed to be for the good of society. So to say we can have a debate about what's good for society or not, but to actually have restrictions, for example, voter ID, having people show an ID to vote is to create a situation less liable to abuses in practice. Right, So it's less liable to to produce fraud. Even Jimmy Carter and Democrats in Georgia, when they studied some of these things years ago, said that. You need to have some way to protect against fraud. Now, of course, that's been dropped. Why? Because one side understands that having less restrictions means more corruption. And so James Fenimore Cooper is saying right here in 1838, more restrictions actually make a better and more stable voting system. It follows that equality, whether considered in connection with our civil or political rights, must not be taken as a general and absolute condition of society. But as such, an equality as depends on principles that are equitable and which are suited to the actual wants of men. Principles that are equitable, but not an equitable society. Right, And it can't be the general and absolute condition of society. You can't have equity. He just basically that's saying you can't have equity. You can't have you can't have equality of condition, which is equity. It's impossible, and it would destroy society. So, and he gets into a lot of other things uh, in this book, and of course, then he continues with American equality. And <laughs> this is a really interesting chapter too: American equality. And uh, because of time, what I'm going to do here is is break this into two episodes. This is equality, and then Cooper's going to get into American equality for the next chapter. And I want to cover that in an episode, but I'm going to do it on tomorrow's episode. So, this is Cooper's position, general position on equality. Equality as a principle, equity versus equality, civil versus political. These are important things to get through. Hope you enjoyed this podcast and this episode. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one on American equality. See you then.